Today we're returning to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, and this morning we'll be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11. We left off in 2 Samuel 10 three weeks ago with Israel's war with the Ammonites, sort of in a state of hold. There had been a lot accomplished by David, but one particular part was put on hold, and we'll get back to that, actually, the context of today's passage. So today, as we begin 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's springtime, verse 1, the time when kings go out to battle. So David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, the Ammonite capital. But David remained at Jerusalem. Israel's war with Ammon is the backdrop, as we see here, for this whole episode between David and Bathsheba and Uriah. Before I read the chapter out loud for us, we need to be on alert for a few literary features. There's three in particular that add um, a lot of meaning and will help you make some connections in this chapter. Um, the first thing to notice is that all of a sudden here in chapter 11, the pace and the tempo really slows down. You might remember how quick, cut and dried the action was in, in chapter 10. And the author in that chapter 10 seemed mainly interested in giving us the bare facts of all the military actions. Few details or commentary. But here in chapter 11, it's almost like time stops as the details are related about the sad events in David's royal court. Second literary feature to notice is that even though the pace slows down here in chapter 11, notice how restrained the author is in explaining the details. We are privy to none of the main characters' actual feelings, although we do hear from Uriah. Examples of this, we just aren't told, for example, how Bathsheba felt about this whole thing. Was she forced? Was she interested in playing along? Was she baiting David? We simply don't know. And we just aren't able to get the in, inside Uriah's head either. We know what he did, but we don't know much besides what he tells us in verse 11. He didn't go back to his house. He acted honorably, but we don't know if there was any other reason for him not going home to his wife on his military leave. Did he have any inkling of something going on in Jerusalem while he was at the front already? We just don't know. And we just don't get any help about how Joab felt with his part in David's cover-up plot. We just don't know. Now, when an author relates all the details, 
of a, well, it is, a sordid affair. But he doesn't offer many clues about the interpersonal motivations of most of the people involved. We've got to ask the question, then, what are we supposed to focus on here? Well, the answer is really pretty simple. The writer seems to silence all feelings here in order to isolate David's actions. Everything is just lit up in the description of what he actually does. But there's one more thing, a third thing to watch out for in this chapter, and that's the irony in this story. Bathsheba's ceremonial monthly cleansing in obedience to the law is followed immediately by adultery with David in blatant disobedience to the law. Uriah disobeys an order of David, which was given in verse 8, but it's because of his faithfulness, which he explains in verse 11. David is constantly talking about shalom in this passage, verse 7, which of course means basically peace, welfare, well-being. But all he's really interested in is to trash the shalom of a marriage and a servant's life. And in verses 21 and through 22, it looks like David has always opposed all unnecessary bloodshed in war and unnecessary risking of lives in war. But then we see Joab carrying out David's order to sacrifice lives to cover up David's previous sin. So all these literary features really help the author get the point across here which is focusing on what David's actions actually were. So what we're left with is, is a huge spotlight on a bunch of things. David as the lustful adulterer in verses 2 through 5. And then the spotlight's on David as the lying entertainer in verses 6 through 13. And then David as the murderous schemer in verses 14 and 15. And then David as the understanding but hypocritical commander in verse 25. That is quite a list. David, adulterer, entertainer, schemer, and commander. Hypocritical commander. And so the simplest way to divide up this chapter, even though it's not very long... Is, to, is through his relationships. First with Bathsheba, and then with Uriah, and then with Joab, and then at the very end, with the Lord. So if you're able, please stand as I read chapter 11 from the English Standard Version. And we've just gone over some things to pay attention to, but... It's hard not to pay attention to this chapter. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, 
David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about all the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you've finished telling all the news about fighting to the king, then, if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobotsheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent, had sent to him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the Entrance of the gate, then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. 
And David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter be evil in your eyes, for the sword devours not one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the, in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, first in verses 2 through 5, we have the relationship between David and Bathsheba. It doesn't take long before the faithful servant who was interested in showing chesed, kindness, God's faithful love to both an Israelite and an Ammonite that we saw David giving Wanting to give in verses 9 and 10, all that becomes, he becomes the fallen servant. Doesn't take much time, does it? This is not the chesed driving David in chapter 11. This is not God's steadfast love driving him. What is it? It's eros, it's lust. All we have to do to see how this happened is to look in the verbs in this first section. He saw, verse 2. He sent and inquired, verse 3. He took her and lay with her, verse 4. Many have written that if David had been where he should have been with his troops at war, he never would have slid down this slippery slope, at least not right then. In verse 1, we see that if so, the first verb of the, pres- of the previous list should be remained David remained, should, in verse 1, fulfilling our duty being where we should be. Doing what we should be doing. Fulfilling our roles in our families. That's a protection from getting into extra temptations. And that's pretty clear here. Situations that we shouldn't even be thinking about, which, of course, come from sinful thoughts of our sinful hearts. I've often wondered what the moral fiber of our churches would be like if more Christians spent less time figuring out how to entertain themselves and create a new personal persona, um, and more time in prayer figuring out how to edify and build up their brothers and sisters in Christ how to take the gospel to people around them. But David remained. And his fall happened remarkably fast. We downplay way too much the moral dangers around us, don't we? In verse 2, we read, David saw. Instead of averting his eyes and leaving, he obviously welcomed and entertained the lust of his eyes and heart. What he did then 
as we all know, was what was already in his heart. All of us need to recognize the simple fact that we are constantly bombarded, more so in our day than ever before in history, with images and compromising situations that are dangerous to our souls. Do we see how far we can play with these lusts without actually acting? Do we rehearse privately acting on these thoughts? Contrary to popular opinion in our day, and this can really tick some people off, fantasizing about things that should be out of bounds does not help us learn faithfulness to the Lord or contentment with his provision or obedience. We live in a culture where fantasizing has become the greatest entertainment that anyone can imagine. And you'll notice that where our technology is going is even going to provide even more. Virtual reality? The first question is, virtual reality of what? It will soon be more than evident that that virtual reality will be the evil thoughts, desires, and lusts of people's own hearts. In verse 3, David sent and inquired. Instead of crying out to the Lord for deliverance and fleeing from the scene, David acted on his desire and lust and curiosity, already plotting how to have her. He could have confessed his lust, realizing that not only was that sin, but also that this woman was married to one of his mighty men, no less. Any lust for another woman, Jesus said, is adultery. In other words, Bathsheba is off limits now and forever. Yet, the next thing we read in verse 4 is that David took her and she came to him and he lay with her. He could have recognized his change of direction, could have. He could have sent her back before anything physical happened. But the seed of sinful desire had already very quickly grown into what? Let's be honest. It's an enslaving desire. By that time, it's so powerful that you're a slave to it which he illustrates. And that's why Paul commands the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, this, verse 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Wow. And that's why Paul commands Timothy in 2 Timothy 
I think it's numbered that way by God's providence because every man needs simple numbers to remember this. And in our day, that's not just men. It's women as well. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Seek safety by flight. Run away. You know, some of the best advice you can give anybody, but especially the young-er amongst us, is you seek first Christ and His righteousness, and you run with people who do. And you look around and you see other people. You seek those things along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Because we underestimate the influence of others whose intentions are not seeking God and His righteousness. And this amps up when the closest people to you, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a fiancé, a closest friend, are those other people. Where are their hearts? One lustful desire, once it starts acting out, getting out of there physically is practically the only way to keep from acting it out. At that moment. Why? Because wise thinking and deliberation have been disengaged from this little instrument right here. From the whole process. Lust is so powerful that when considered, played with, and entertained, the acting on it happens faster than you can possibly ever imagine. And then you're left with the consequences. You know, I think my, my girls still grin at Marty and I's warnings to flee, flee. We kind of made it fun for a while. Hopefully that warning will be heeded the rest of the lives in the next generation. But it's not funny. It's wise. Get out of there, wherever. Sometimes it means get out of the relationship before that knot is tied. Because your heart can become somebody else's before the knot is tied, and then you're stuck. If you think you could never do something like that, then you've already taken the first step in falling. Don't ever be surprised at what you're capable of. The only safe ground, which is summed up in hymn number 457 amongst many other places, but I just happened to see this, in the hymn called, <coughs> one, of the, one of the best ever, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, listen to verse 3. And if you don't believe me, it's 457 in your hymnal and you can check it. Listen to these words. Oh, to grace 
how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter, fetter is a shackle or something that restrains you, bind my wandering heart to thee. Isn't that great? And then we read the result. And you notice how it just kind of shot out of the shotgun here in the text? The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Verse 4 told us her time of the month had just occurred, so she could not have been pregnant by her husband. Again, simple facts. The father of this unborn child is definitely David, no question. She leaves it to the king, David, about what to do, because after all, this sin was punishable by death, which we forget. Leviticus 20.10, Deuteronomy 22.22. Then the text switches gears and goes into the relationship with Uriah in verses 6-13. through And we see now this elaborate attempt to control the situation and cover up his sin by David. Although, think how many people his own servants already, already knew what was going on. But David didn't care that some knew, only that while it looked like, only what it looked like could be covered up. That's what he cared about, covering it up. Covering it up, he's a king. So David makes three attempts, I don't know if you saw that as we read through it, to cover up his adultery and immorality. The first two attempts are trying to apply damage control, and they fail miserably in verses 6 through 13. And the last attempt in verses 14 through 25 is successful, quote-unquote, only in a hypocritical way. So what's the first attempt? David brings Uriah home from the front, the battle, under false pretenses, and tries to get him to go home and sleep with his wife. Then the pregnancy would look normal, but it doesn't work. This plan doesn't work. Why? Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. with all of David's servants in verse 9. And David can't believe this, so he asked Uriah why in verse 10, and Uriah's answer is in verse 11. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field, in other words, back where they're supposed to be in the battle. Shall I then go to my house to eat, drink, and to lie with my wife as you live, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What does that tell you about this man? Yeah, he's something else. Uriah is the only faithful person in this whole story. I don't know whether you noticed that. Okay, failure. Try number two. The same strategy, but this time David relies on a very popular strategy, which is to make Uriah drunk in verse 13 
But Uriah did not go down to his house in his drunken state. Didn't. So David is really getting frustrated now. He can't control this situation enough to cover his sin. And he's determined on covering his sin himself. So he plots Uriah's murder in attempt number three, trying to cover it up by making it happen in battle. And I hope you noticed that there was a lot of other guys killed in this battle because of this stupid strategy. So then it switches gears, and the text does in verses 14 through 25 in his relationship with Joab. And the directions for Joab are pretty simple in verse 15. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. This is premeditated murder. And this finally works. Uriah's killed in this battle. But the question is, do you think that David thinks it's finally it's all finally over and that relief will finally come? Well, let's think about that for a second. Who knows? The servants who gave David the info about Bathsheba and who brought her to him, we all know that they would never spread the truth. They knew, but they weren't about to spread it. Joab, who is now part of the whole conspiracy, he knows everything. All the people who saw Uriah in town and were wondering why. And then there's Bathsheba, of course. Her servants, maids, friends, family, etc. But David has forgotten or suppressed who? The Lord. We do exactly the same thing. The one who matters the most. The Lord. Verses 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And then this last part of the verse should pack the biggest punch in the world. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord and this displeased the Lord has to do, it's an idiom, but it's, it's really talking about was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Notice back in 25 how David had tried to make Joab feel better about this murder. Did you notice that? Let's read verse 25. David said to the messenger, this is what you tell Joab, Don't let this matter trouble you or be evil in your eyes, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. What do you think? Joab obeyed the command. And it happened. So we've already seen that this last line 
of verse 27 is really the bottom line to the story. Nine months have passed, and so far the consequences have been almost non-existent. So David probably thought, even with the list of people, in answer to that previous question, all the people that must have known, you know how you think, I've gotten away with this. Nine months. But for the rest of David's life, the consequences will torment him. And that's all explained in chapter 12, the next chapter. But until that last verse, did you feel like God was way too silent about all this? But was he really silent? See, there's a big lesson here. The silence of God does not indicate that he is absent. We all need to learn this, but boy, we need to help the kids learn this. The silence of God and what looks like no consequences does not mean that he is absent. And David runs smack into the judgment of God. And if you're already looking at verse 12, I mean chapter 12 to see what happened, what did happen? The Lord took the life of the child. And then we see the accusation come that brought him to his knees in repentance. But that's the next chapter. We're left here with what looks like silence, but the judgment of God, David, is running head into it. What he did was evil in the Lord's eyes, and it is crystal clear what God thought about it. Just because evil runs on its successful course, or what looks like a successful course, does not mean that God is not watching it. We think that, and that is utterly foolish. What do you know about God? He knows everything. He watches everything. Everything we do, we live before Him. He can't be outsmarted. He can't be deceived. There is nothing that he does not know. He sees the truth in every situation. The mystery of why God did not step in and prevent it is not answered here in our text. But the point for us from this chapter is that God Almighty may seem to be silent, but he is not blind. David will have to face the Lord's eyes as Peter did. And as we do. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you've given us similar two-sided 
of the two sides of the coin messages this morning from Sunday school about the women, woman caught in adultery and what Jesus did to save her by his mercy and grace. And then this, this story of one of your own who was sinning terribly and had to live with the consequences the rest of his life, but who we already know will be brought to his knees, his heart belong to you, who will repent and know your grace in new and deeper ways and a levity and a weightiness in life as a result. But we know and we see here the tremendous warnings for each of us that we are all capable of great and sordid sin. And we so many times just look at these situations as frivolous and make up excuses that are foolish. And yet, if we call our names as being one of yours, whom you bought with the price of your son's blood, and we truly wish to live and glorify you, we do have a cross to run to. But we also need your strength and your wisdom to see these things in our own inner hearts as individuals and not be fools, to recognize the dangers that are around us and not try to hide, but to recognize that our hearts belong to you and to learn how to glory in that fact minute by minute and learn how to run to you and learn how to flee from sin and stand up for the right when we can. And Lord, we know that you work in great ways when we recognize our proneness to wander and we keep that before you. And we see your protection and your strength revealed in ways that we've never known before. And we pray that we could be a people who can say that we know you we know your grace in Christ. We know our hearts want to walk on this road together. And know that we need your wisdom and your fidelity and your faithfulness. We ask that you'd work this out in us. And we pray now, Lord, as we come to your table, that these things would become even clearer as we recognize in deeper ways, in broader ways. Why you sent your son to do we, what we cannot do for ourselves. To bring glory and honor to your own name. We are utterly helpless without your intervention in the person of your son to pay the price for our sin. We recognize that the first thing that happens in our hearts, oh God, as we learn these truths is we are humbled. And it's a humble people that you desire that will know you and 
be able to see your strength exercised through our actions. We pray that our wisdom in the word, the learning would not just be in our heads, but that we could encourage one another and pass these truths on as we all struggle with continued sin. Walking together, O God, we see your grace in mighty and powerful ways. Thank you for your forgiveness in Christ. Thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.